Tennessee Wildcast is live on the air with the latest on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things outdoors. Make welcome your host, drummer and outdoor expert novice, Jason Harmon. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Tennessee Wildcast. We thank y'all for tuning in. Hey, we're on Bridgestone, Firestone, Centennial, Wilderness, WMA today, Wildlife (laughs) Management Area. That's a big one. Uh, James Douglas is the manager out here, and and he uh, came on the show, uh, last show we did out here, and uh, glad to be back at the uh, Bridgestone, Firestone, WMA. don't forget to listen on the radio. Thank y'all for tuning in on the radio. Uh, tune in on iTunes. Uh, we got you can download our podcast there. We're on a lot of the other podcast uh, providers. So check us out if you're on a different phone other than an Apple phone. Maybe check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're out there on social media all the time. YouTube, you can watch us there. And then we, we just uh, launched Next Door. We're a member of Next Door now. Uh, one of the agencies on that. So That's we'll keep you up, keep you up to date with events and things happening in your neighborhood. So. Uh, we'll keep you keep you informed on that. And I've got Miss Mimi Barnes with me. She's going to help co-host today, along with Daniel Esbanco and Chris Simpson. Yes, it's going to be a fun show. It is. Happy to be here. Uh, we're going to be talking bats and non-game and all kinds of fun stuff, and some eagles and some snakes and salamanders. And yeah, should be fun. <laughs> a little bit of everything. These guys are diving in caves and dealing with all these awesome creatures so i see them lugging wetsuits i see them with nets i see them with cameras it's awesome yeah we have fun jobs here at the agency we sure do we enjoy what we do and do it for you the sportsman and wildlife watcher and all you guys out there so uh it's uh, it's fun so let's start with learning about these guys i guess yeah would you both take some time and tell us a little bit about yourself and your history and and what you do with the agency Okay, my name is Daniel Isvonko. I am the Region 3 Wildlife Diversity Survey Manager here. Um, that c- encompasses the whole Upper Cumberland area. Uh, I'm a Tennessee native. I grew up hunting and fishing in West Tennessee. Uh, pursued a bachelor's in wildlife and fishery sciences from UT Martin. And then not long after that, I actually went to graduate school at Arkansas State University where I got my master's uh, working specifically with bats. Awesome. Cool, yeah. and Chris? we've had Chris on before. He's he's yeah. an old he's an old guy. He's yeah. been on he's been on <laughs> yeah. Wildcast. But tell us about yourself again, Chris. All right, it's great to be back. My name is Chris Simpson. I'm the Region Three Wildlife Diversity Coordinator. I grew up in Middle Tennessee as well, uh, hunting and fishing all over Southern Kentucky and Tennessee, and just got a, developed a love for the great outdoors. And as a kid, my parents would carry me around. I remember going to Realfoot Lake as a child to see bald eagles, and then who knew. You know, several years later, I begin to work with them as yeah, well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I love awesome. that. I love that part of his story. Yeah. <laughs> we all have that, don't we? Oh, yeah. And we all grew up in the outdoors some, some way, some form or fashion, whether it was watching watching it or hunting it or, you know, enjoying the outdoors. And now we're all working in the outdoors. Chris, tell us your role with the agency, too, before I forget. Well, um, I started in fisheries for several years, worked at the streams crew, but now, uh, like I said, I'm the Region 3 Wildlife Diversity Coordinator and help uh, administer several programs like uh, the State Wildlife Grant Program and the inventory that, that Daniel does, the biodiversity inventory on the state lands and private lands as well. Wow. So today we got some pictures to show, and, and Daniel's going to start us off talking about bats and white-nose syndrome and some of the work that we've been doing so doing in that area. So A big part of your work is bats right now, and we've talked about white-nose syndrome on the show before, but briefly mm-hmm. explain what white-nose syndrome is. Okay, so white-nose syndrome is a, a cold-loving fungus that was first thought to be introduced in 2006 to the United States. Um, it's detrimental to bat populations. Since that time, 
we've lost uh, upwards of 90 or in excess of 90% of some of our populations in specific areas. Um, it causes large-scale fatalities, especially in northern states, and it's been rapidly spreading ever since it was introduced. So, a uh, very terrible disease, a lot of people working on it with, with no practical cure at the moment, um, but we have a lot of great people behind it um, in helping combat that disease and save our bats. So, it's not necessarily like a red bat that might be out, out in the woods this time of year, but it's more those cave-dwelling bats. <laughs> so, it affects them all differently, different species, but you're right, Mimi, it specifically is, is most harmful to the cave obligate species, the ones that need caves in the wintertime. Okay, okay. And, Chris, you've said it many times to me, but how many how many caves are in Tennessee? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, let me start out by saying, reminding everyone that Tennessee is the most biologically diverse endless state in North America. And you can when you look at our topography, it just makes sense from, from the plains, the alluvial plains of Memphis area, and then all the way up to the spruce forest and the Appalachians. But in the middle, we have a lot of karst topography. And so, like Mimi said, we have over 10,000 caves in Tennessee, which is really diverse. And so Crazy. with all those caves, we have a lot of bat species. 10,600 and some odd. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's get specific. Still counting. Well, documented caves. Still counting. More, yeah, so. So, so Daniel sends me these photographs and videos of crazy cave crawling um but but i've said to them and and you jason what it's reflective of to me is the the lengths we're willing to take for yeah. wildlife in our mission statement and it's not just those big game species that we love so much but it's down to the tiniest little critters like bats so you're crawling around in cave <laughs> sometimes yeah so uh winter time yeah hanging on a rope crawling through water um and you just came out of that time period where you're where, where you're in the caves counting um we don't want people just walking into caves unknowingly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, talk a little bit about that cave protocol. Um, I've been with them, and yeah. it's, they go to great lengths. So, yeah, well, wintertime, you know, like I said, we have a ton of caves in Tennessee, and they're, and they're not all bat caves, but we do have a lot of bat caves. And during the winter is a specifically vulnerable time for bats because you go in there, you wake them up, um, they're disturbed, they come out of torpor, uh, their metabolism speed up, and then they have to go look for food. Well, as we all know, wintertime is not the best time to be out foraging for insects. Um, so a lot of them can actually die of starvation. But to minimize our effects, we, uh, we visit caves, specific ones biannually, so we don't go every year. Um, when we're in there, we minimize our voices, we keep things quiet. I like to refer to it as a library voice. Um, <laughs> it, every, it's a whisper. Yeah. Uh, we don't like to shine our lights on bright on bats all the time. So we strive to be quick and efficient, get in and out being unnoticed. And a lot of times that simply um, is best done if you can just snap pictures and count later. Um, but yeah, we would advise people if you know of a bad cave to at least stay out of it in the winter months. You know, between December and, and mid-April is, is, is a vulnerable time for many species. So we can, we can spread that white-nose syndrome disease. Absolutely, knowingly. yes. And that's how it is uh, suspected to get into the United States. And that's probably how it got all the way out west. Um, bats do move with themselves within state boundaries, but people probably have been the ultimate mover of that disease. So. Y'all um, can add to that. We, we do observe clean caving protocols, and uh, you can find a, those uh, list yeah. of precautions on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website. But we do, after we come out of every cave, we clean our clothing, clean our gear. And there's, uh, the, the protocol is becoming easier and easier. You can even just boil your, boil your, your clothes in hot water now. Wow. Daniel boiled my clothes and, <laughs> and my shoes. It's, it's so second nature now. I, I forget <laughs> that most people don't do that. I'm just so used to uh, decontaminating large amounts of gear. So, yeah. I mean, um, is that a good coworker or what? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs>
Here's my, well, never mind. <laughs> so, um, so what bat species are you interested in? Why and why? Why are you interested in specific species in Tennessee? Well, the short answer is we're really interested in, in threatened and endangered species, whether that's federally listed or state listed. Um, and then the best answer and the long answer would be a more proactive one that we're really interested in all of them because as we all know and as, as the history or past can tell us, we don't know what's going to be endangered in, in my future or your children's future. So wow. we're really interested in them all, but we spend a lot of research time on specific ones that are threatened and endangered. And what, just talk about maybe one or two of those. Um, the Indiana bat and the uh, gray bat. Um, we have pretty decent populations here in the state, and, and every year we have research that's um, facilitated around those species, whether it's through universities, NGOs, or, or other federal agencies. Wow. Um, and, and just so our listeners know, where does that funding come from? So a lot of those come from federal dollars, state wildlife grants, which Chris can elaborate on. And then some of them, like uh, this project, which we can talk about later, that we were just helping last week, was all private donors. So sometimes it's just an interested party that has the money. Wow. And so there's tons of grant opportunities out there, even with big industry, that provide research dollars. Do you find the landowner that maybe has the cave on their property interested in donating and helping out? Um, not donating, but interesting and helping most of the time. Gotcha. They want to know what's going on, and, and they like finding important links to their properties. Most Everyone that I've ran into in that scenario has been more than enthusiastic about learning that there's an endangered species that's using their property. Wow. So, yeah, it's good. Well, Chris, tell us about that funding. Well, back around uh, 2000, the year 2000, Congress uh, initiated a program called State Wildlife Grants. And so that helps provide funding to all 50 states, commonwealths, and territories. And that gives them annual funding each year to work with uh, species of greatest conservation need, which mm-hmm. include all federally listed and state listed in. Uh, some species that are not quite ready to be listed, but we're trying to keep them off the endangered species list. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, it it is amazing, and I I didn't I always say I learn something new every day, but but um, I didn't know that there were there was even private funding. That's phenomenal. So you mentioned that project that you're just coming off of. What is that? So we were um, actually. Well, I say we were grateful to be able to assist in these projects, but it was a, the Nature Conservancy, TNC. Uh, they had a project that they recently had funded through um, probably grants and, and, as I was told, private donors. But they were looking at gray bat migrations from caves, so their winter caves to their summer sites, which, um, to my knowledge in the literature, hasn't been done. We have that documented from band returns, but um, they were wanting to look at migratory pathways. That way we could mitigate future development. Um, wow. So we were able to actually get to help and assist and do that thing. But that whole project was probably pretty expensive, and that was private dollars, people that had concerns for bats and development, and they funded that, which is amazing work. Cool. we got a few friends with us here today. If you, <laughs> yeah. we, we look a little distracted. we got a few dogs running out here, but they're, they're interested in what's going on. And they, they smell my, my dogs as well, so all friends here yeah so um so daniel brought along some video yeah um of of some of the cave work that he does and we just pulled a about a minute clip off of that um because it it's it is not an office environment that you two are going to every day or should i say every night uh you're out there at all different times i i try to impress upon people that a twra job is not nine to five um, you never know what time. And at one point, Chris told me about working 30 days straight. Um, that's the dedication of folks that we have um, working for the agency. So, so Daniel, we I've have I've got this. it playing so they can see it at home. But yeah. tell us what, what that video, what was in that video? What were you doing 
in that cave there. So they're watching the video right now. That video right there is uh, one of the largest gray bat hibernaculums in the United States. Well, it is the largest. Um, we got asked to come assist uh, other states and federal agencies to come count gray bats there. We do this at all our priority sites every year, but um, we go in and we get a, a general estimate of the population just so we can keep up with the health of that species. That species was listed over 30 years ago and since then has done quite well, but was left on the endangered species list um, due to the white nose syndrome showing up. So mm -hmm. um, those kind of species we monitor every year just to make sure the populations are, are uh, healthy and, and it, increasing hopefully right yeah <laughs> and so people can see that in that video it's it's just it's not a square room how do you take those counts it, yes it sounds easy so as you can <laughs> see in the video sometimes you have irregular surfaces canyons uh sometimes they're hundreds of feet away sometimes they're right in your face while you're crawling but um we have a, a very standardized method it's imperfect but it's very consistent where we um, estimate bats using a formula so we establish if for instance, we'll come up to a cluster of bats and we'll use a laser range finder to draw a polygon around that. And then we'll get an area estimate. And then when you have that area, you can say what percentage of that polygon is covered by bats. So then you multiply that by 70%. And then we have sort of a categorical ranking of how many bats per square foot. And for gray bats, that could vary anywhere from 25 up, upwards to 250 individuals wow. on a square foot. So that part's subjective. Wow. Uh, we use a dual observer method so we can kind of between me and a counterpart establish what we think is accurate. And at the end of the day, we just do the math and add it all up. And um, we try to use the same partners year after year. That way we know we're, we're getting consistent <laughs> counts. So right, yeah. it's, uh, like I said, imperfect, but consistency is the key here. So each region has two of you. <laughs> or one of you and one, one of you. Well, at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we work strongly with my counterparts. There's three others throughout the state. And uh, we all jump around and help each other out because these are monumental efforts that just would not be accomplished with just me or, or Chris. I mean, they're they're above our effort capabilities. Right. Wow. Well, so you've talked a little bit how you you count and take the pictures and draw the circles around and whatever. How do you get in these caves? A lot of them aren't as easy to access as others, right? <laughs> with a hope and a prayer. But that one right there, um, that one required some rope work. I believe it was about a hundred foot pit. So a lot of them require rappelling or, or crawling through water or, or kayaking to them or. Um, yeah, you always look for the easiest route, and what I've learned is there's really never one. So that one, we got to hike for a few hours, a couple miles up to the top, then repel, and I mean, it was a 12-hour day. Wow. Um, it was an amazing, amazing experience to get to go there and see that, but um, physically exerting. I think I've got, this is a picture of you going down the rope. Is that what that is there? Well, that is a different cave, but okay. that is that is what it would look like when you're on your way climbing out, and you're just wondering if I will ever get to the top of that. <laughs> you can see there, that's, that is skylight a couple hundred feet above me. So, so you're not pulling up on a ladder or climbing the walls you're having to use use your own body strength to pull yourself up these ropes Is using that? all rope climbing equipment yes wow. so when done properly it can be efficient but um <laughs> let's just say there's nothing easy about climbing it some days <laughs> it, it's still physical very physical oh yeah pretty amazing skill sets right yeah <laughs> definitely and then you got to be careful about touching the walls of the cave and things like that right or oh yes yeah i mean other than harming the cave environment and leaving things behind you don't want to leave a trace i mean these are and oftentimes, unstable environments, things can fall, it's mm -hmm. dangerous, and the last thing you want to be is, is injured and trapped in a cave. Um, so, yeah, the utmost caution is taken when rigging, rappelling, climbing. Um, and, you know, sometimes the reward is not worth the risk, and, that, and we definitely um, err on the side of caution. Yeah. Wow. And then I think about reaching over and touching those bats. Whoo! You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a creepy, too. I mean, you do it all the time. So this is nothing, nothing new for you. But you no, they're... People they're, think about bats, and they think, oh, it's scary, you know. 
Well, until they see a close-up, and then they realize they're really quite cute, you know? They're, <laughs> they're pretty they're cute. They're just like little little kittens or something. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Little kittens with wings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sky kittens. Yeah. They're very cute, I have to admit. <laughs> People often say that, ooh, bats, but but when you know about a species mm-hmm. and, you, and you're, um, you have that knowledge, that it gains a, a level of respect for you, too. But There's uh, 16 species of bats found throughout Tennessee, and a very mm-hmm. tiny, tiny percentage of them have rabies, but that is a uh, risk you just don't want to take, so mm-hmm. we ask people now. Never to, to touch one. Yeah. Um, so, so let's touch on that real quick, Chris. We're coming up. We are in that season where people are going to find injured orphan wildlife, or they might see a bat. What should they do? Um, first of all, if you see, let's just start with white-tailed deer, for example. If you find a, a, a little baby fawn you think is abandoned, more than likely it's not. The mother hides that fawn in the weeds to camouflage it for its protection so please leave those alone but if you do find injured uh, wildlife you can get on our website Uh, there's a bar across the top of the page and about the seventh word from the left the tab is the law enforcement rub your mouse over mouse over the law enforcement tab and it'll take you to a list of wildlife rehabilitators throughout the state of Tennessee that are permitted through us and that's tnwildlife.org tnwildlife.org yep absolutely Um, so so that's good uh, We've talked about that bat side of it, but your job is so much more than bats. Um, let's talk about some of those other animals that you're um, studying throughout the year. Okay, so um, in this recent most past year, we had a multi-state green salamander project that we've been working on, and we'll continue that this year. Uh, basically, we're just trying to establish where greens are, green salamanders are, um, their densities, their health, things like that. For a lot of species, we don't even have the groundwork information to know. We have a general idea of the range, but you know, within certain areas, we have no idea if they're there until we go look. So that's been an ongoing project. Um, we've recently tried to ramp up our efforts on spotted skunk surveys. Other states are doing the same thing as well. Um, there'll be a pine snake project starting up soon that Chris can elaborate on a little bit. You want to speak on that? I can do it, yeah. The, several southeastern states are uh, participating in a pine snake study. Pine snakes are becoming more and more rare across the southeast. And uh, they're, what the, they're what biologists refer to as fossorial, which is just a fancy word for meaning they live underground most of the time. But when they do come up uh, to feed, if you ever uh, find one, please uh, give us a call. We're very interested in those occurrences, and uh, they're really declining. Take a picture, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Take, yes. take a picture. And multiple <laughs> pictures at that. Yeah. A lot of times you get one that's obscure, and you're like, maybe. But, yeah, oftentimes it takes several well-taken pictures to, to identify some of these species. And, and pine snake is our, our largest snake in Tennessee, so you don't have to get too close. You can take a good picture from far away. It, How wow. big? It can easily be over six feet. Yeah. Wow. Wow. How I'd big like around? It <laughs> <laughs> uh, varies. Baseball but, bat? Yeah, <laughs> just the handle of a baseball bat for sure. Wow. wow. Pretty cool. I didn't know they got that big. Yeah, that's awesome. Hmm. Um, so, um, so you know I have an interest in the spotted skunk because I have them on my property, which I've been pretty excited about. But um, We'll we, show a video while you're... Well, we, we have the video, but we also have that picture um, to let folks... What should folks do if they, they think they see a rare animal on their property? They can give us a call at one of the regional uh, TWRE offices in uh, Jackson, Nashville, across from Morristown, and ask for their wildlife diversity biologist. But uh, if you do see a spotted skunk, uh, please give us a call. And we have a, uh, a flyer or a picture in our hunting guide. And most southeastern states are have the same exact flyer, so it's a, a big effort. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, being studied all over the uh, south. And uh, we're trying to get occurrences, figure out where those animals are feeding at, where they're living at throughout the year. Wow. And uh, we're just trying to keep another mammal off the endangered species list. Mm. So there's an example of the, of the flyer and, and uh, 
the difference between the eastern spotted and the striped. So it's a big difference. Quite, a, I haven't seen one of the spotteds in the wild. It's a big size difference, and it's a pattern difference as well. But you have some on your property, right? I'm very fortunate, <laughs> and I love it. They, poor Chris and Daniel are often hearing me blab about something, but because I love it all. I got this, you don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but but it, what what it always comes back to for me is that diversity and that you're just not, I mean, so much of your job is bats um, at certain times of year, but you're out there at different times of the day looking. Um, the green uh, salamander, you're, you weren't out in the afternoon for that one either, were you? <sighs> Not typically. I try to do things around the best time of year for it. Um, but like Mimi says, it, it varies with seasons and projects. Um, and a lot of times it's opportunistic. You just happen to be, even when I'm not really at work, I come across a rare species and we're going to document it at least. So um, it's when you do find things. And, and oftentimes, even if I'm going to a cave, I may end up making or finding occurrences for other species. So it's a very fluid job and, um, and it, uh, can always keep going. Yeah. And so the disease side of it, um, it's not that it's new. It's just some diseases are coming on the scene more. And one of those is the snake fungal disease. Could one of you elaborate a little bit on snake fungal disease? I can start. Uh, <laughs> snake fungal disease is found up in the northeastern U- U.S. and it's been spreading to the south. And we've documented it in Tennessee a couple years ago. Uh, up in the north, it's really decimated the uh, Massasauga rattlesnake populations. And in the Tennessee, it... Uh, was first documented in timber rattlesnakes. It enters the laborial pit in the face and gets in their tissue and eventually uh, deforms their lower jaw and they get to where the animal can't feed. And then they uh, exhibit uh, strange behavior in the wintertime where they come out of hibernation sooner than they should and you may see them laying out on uh, on uh, rocks sunning in, Janu- in, sunning in January mm-hmm. but also it's affecting multiple species besides rattlesnake it's in uh, I forget the exact number of snakes and that's positive but it's quite an extensive list across the eastern U.S. Outside of venomous snakes so mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. a lot of species that people love to have in their yard and some they don't um, but a lot of times like Chris said you can see large uh, lacerations or ulcers on them. A lot of times they won't be able to shed their skin. They look like sick animals like when oh. you see them. Um, we've been working um, with Tennessee, well, MTSU. Um, Dr. Walker over there has been doing a project for us on snake fungal disease as well as other researchers. Um, but if you do see sick snakes, that would be another thing good to call in because we have people who would, who would go there and swab and like to document the spread of that disease as well. Cool. Yeah, that would be good to know. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. that communication with the general public seems to mean a lot to us. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of photos through Facebook, and mm-hmm. people are asking, "What's this?" or "Is there something wrong with this animal?" You know, can we? Can you help? Or so we we try to answer those when we can. And yeah, and we're get those glad to, to do guys. that. We do that every day. So there's two other animals that I want to talk about, and one is the hellbender because that's the largest salamander that we have, and how cool is it? That's but, a um, cool creature. <laughs> and the other is a fisher. So let's start with that hellbender. I, I've seen both of them in the water diving for for yeah. the. Salamander. <laughs> well, we've we've been lucky enough to assist with hellbender research in the past and, and ongoing research. Um, a lot of that is is involved snorkeling and actually flipping rocks and looking for them at the time. And as hellbender research ramped up, it, it turned out that that was almost too much of it. It was actually doing more damage than good. Mm-hmm. So we tried to limit our impact because these hellbender populations are are specific to certain areas, like Hawassie is, is a stronghold for them. Some other places. Um, they are widespread through Tennessee, but a lot of populations simply only have adults. It's not thought that they have reproducing populations. Oh, wow. So when you do find one or document it, it's pretty amazing. Um, but they're so cryptic, it, it would really be hard to survey for them thoroughly and get a population idea of what's really going on. And how big does that salamander get, just so folks know? <laughs> I could think of the maximum size. The, the last two that I was lucky enough to hold were longer than my forearm. So... 
um, probably just over maybe around two feet long and altogether. I, wow. I got to say, you know, one of the nicknames is the snot otter. <laughs> I got to say. Snot otter, it. okay. Yeah. <laughs> they have some tr- <laughs> unique uh, <laughs> names for Poor sure. Things. Nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But if the public does see one or catch one accidentally on a, a rod and reel or a trot line, please mm-hmm. just get the hook out of its mouth normally like you would out of any fish and just please put it back. It's uh, They're becoming more and more rare. And uh, we're trying to keep it off the uh, endangered species list. And you, they turn up rocks and get up, hide up under all kinds of good stuff in those waters, don't they? They do. It's pretty amazing what they can get under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. If they can fit their head through that crevice, mm-hmm. they'll get under there and, and make a nest or a home. So. Yeah. And, the, and, and they're the, largely nocturnal, so the chances wow. of you seeing one are, are even pretty more slim. rare. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> Learn something every day, don't we? Uh, so the other rare animal that uh, we wanted to mention is the fisher. Yeah. Um, that's come to light here in the last few weeks. Um, the agency, let me go back a minute, the, the agency uh, reintroduced those animals back in uh, uh, the mid late 1990s, early 2000s, but they are a native species to Tennessee. They still occur in the uh, northeast and southern Canada uh, quite frequently, but uh, we've had several people call in the last week about uh, some sightings, and so if you're able to get a sighting uh, in person or on a trail camera, please uh, give me a call and uh We'd love to set out a trail camera, see if we get more pictures. Tell us about the size of that animal and, and just describe it a little bit for folks that not, might not know what a fisher is. Well, just roughly, it's kind of a cross between a, a, a groundhog and a... <laughs> <laughs> but when you see one crossing the road, I mean, it has a very distinct uh, lope or walk, but it has a big, huge, bushy tail. Hmm. The tail really sets it apart at, at a distance if you've seen the silhouette because no other mammal like raccoon or otter has that type of tail. So once you can see it, it's pretty easy to recognize. Give us an animal that we might compare in size uh, to a gray fisher. fox. A gray fox size yeah. okay. with a bushy tail. Yeah. And coloration? It's solid brown, almost black okay okay and um, one unique interesting thing about fishers is they'll eat skunks striped skunks okay. so a lot oh, of times wow. you may see one on the road eating a roadkill skunk so you never know where they're going to turn up but they're nocturnal as well all right hmm. Good to know. Cool, yeah. And and Chris, I gotta say, one more thing that you work on is um, the bald eagle. Um, so we might as well say because folks often contact us um, with sightings. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us what you need. Absolutely. Let me uh, give you a little brief history. Uh, bald eagles are reintroduced into the state back in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, they're doing quite well. They've been delisted or downlisted, ever how you want to say that. But uh, uh, we have over 200 active nests in Tennessee, and we don't. We're not. We need the new nest location. So we don't need you to call in with every bald eagle sighting, but if you get see a new nest or document a new nest, please call one of your regional offices. Thanks. Or a golden eagle. We'd love to hear about that, too. Absolutely. Yeah, let's awesome. make a golden yeah. eagle. So. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you Glad all. to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for your knowledge. Thank you for joining us today and, and giving us this information. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool that they may be able to jump in a cave with them. So. <laughs> <laughs> they I may, have. They it's, may not let me crazy. go. <laughs> I don't know. They just need to wash your shoes and yeah. boil your shoes out. Boil my <laughs> shoes. All right. Well, hey, I wanted to mention, if you want to see some more video on those green salamanders, uh, Barry Cross put together a great video. It's on our YouTube page on our Facebook. So check that out if you want to learn more about those guys. But uh, Daniel, Chris, thank you all. Thank Mimi, you. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Tennessee Wildcast. Find us on Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we're out there on Twitter and Instagram and, and all these fun places. Don't forget to uh, download us on iTunes. So uh, We'll uh, be seeing you later, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Stay connected with TWRA by visiting our website at tnwildlife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Hey, it's all about Tennessee wildlife. It's what we do. Tennessee Wildcast will be on the air again next week. We'll see you then.